0: Hi, I'm Brent Stanford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Just over a month ago, it appeared radical environmental activists were clo- close to achieving a long-sought goal to shut down Canada by strangling the energy and resource sector into oblivion. Across the country, protests erupted and blockades were erected, paralyzing Canada's national transportation system in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who called for the cancellation of the $6.6 billion dollar coastal gasoline pipeline project in northern BC. What the protests failed to accomplish in February may be finished by the coronavirus and the unprecedented shutdown of the global economy made all the worse by a massive drop in the price of oil, which threatens the very existence of Canada's energy sector. And joining us today to talk about that on Watch is Chris Sankey, a prominent First Nations leader here in the province of British Columbia and advocate for the energy sector. Chris, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thank you for having me. Chris, we were speaking about getting you on the show to talk about the Wet'suwet'en protests and then COVID hit. And what a disaster, obviously. But before we get into that, the issues and impacts, please fill our audience in a bit on who you are and what you do.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, Chris Sankey from Loko I'm part of the Coast Simchian, uh Nation of Loko and Uh, I was elected for a number of years, uh, for six and a half. Uh, The term was a total eight, but I decided to move on from uh, my elected role and go back into the private sector. Uh, Part of my role was to um, help uh, move economic development projects forward uh, in the energy sector. Uh, as well as I uh, was one of the negotiators. There's four of us that worked on the file. I helped facilitate uh, the $36 billion LNG opportunity that uh, evidently was canceled, which was P&W. Um, that was, uh, it was a big, uh, big hit to the community. I also uh, was one of uh, two that helped negotiate the first ever environmental warning agreement for the coast, uh, sibsian uh, on our side of Luck Lamb. There's two of us, so that was between us, uh, the Feds, and uh, the and BC. So it was a quite precedented uh, monitoring agreement. Um, it's still online. Anyone could access it, and hopefully, you know, if anybody wants to access it, they could actually if they want to approve it, uh, add upon it. Great. I, I think it was a great model to start. So, uh, but I've been involved in the energy sector for a while now, uh, going on eight to 10 years. Um, been around it most of it on my political life, uh, political career. And now I just, uh, I'm focused on the private sector. I'm now, I have a, com- a, a company called Blackfish Enterprises that provides uh, provide strategic advice uh, for the energy sector, indigenous and government as well as uh, I have a heavy civil uh, contracting company where I'm a shareholder with uh, four other gentlemen, uh, as well as I'm involved in sustainable development projects such as agriculture and uh, aquaculture.
0: So uh, uh, let, me ask you, let me ask you, Chris, um, would you characterize First Nations in British Columbia as pro-resources or anti-resources?
1: Pro or pro-development. I think a lot of Canadians got uh, the north and west coast, uh, um, um, they got us wrong. Uh, th- there's a lot of pro-development communities on the north coast. Uh, even those communities that have opposed resource development, a lot of the times they were misunderstood. Uh, I know and speaking to uh, communities, uh, a lot of them felt that uh, they weren't being a part of the opportunity. Uh, or not enough information come forward. Uh, so therefore, you got a lot of uh, those uh, that protested. But um, I think uh, one of the things that Canadians need to understand is that uh, out here, uh, a lot of Indigenous people felt they weren't prepared for this, even though uh, many of us that were fully engaged, uh, especially with the Coast of, Chien, of local lands Malakala, you look at Heisla, and the communities that were fully engaged uh, with industry, uh, it was right in our territories, and I think what, ha- what ended up happening was um, a lot of those communities uh, that weren't within the corridor or close to Tidewater where the negotiations were taking place were opposed to the project because they felt that, uh, one, the GHG emissions would impact um, development and more ships uh, uh, would pass by their communities. Uh, so they felt that uh, they um, didn't have a say, I guess, if you will. Uh, so, it's, uh, it, it was a trying time at the time. Um, I had mentioned to a few people that at that time, when we were negotiating p and uh, there was a combined total of about uh, $650 billion of proposed projects alone, uh, just in the Prince-Supri area, which is the Coast Sipcian Territory um and that didn't even include a few other projects that were not on, on the books at the time and which is now we have Volpack, alta gas um it didn't even include uh, some of the local uh already industry projects that are here which is the coal grain and uh secan uh, container so, terminal
0: chris uh, just as we got some of this footage uh up here explain to our viewers the feeling that you had and the people in your community about the protests that happened that were shutting down Canada uh, and by echo militants, really, you know, they're very extreme.
1: Frustration. Uh, I think uh, there was a lot of uh, misrepresentation um, by the NGOs, uh, which was very frustrating because they, I think the broader sense Canada received in particular back East, they felt that we were all on the same page. Uh, There was a lot of these NGOs that hijacked the narrative uh, for their own personal gain. Uh, I've always said I I support solidarity. I I support that our our communities come together to uh, to work together, to find common ground, to find common interests, uh, to rid political risk. Uh, But we had a number of interest groups uh, outside of Canada that decided to think otherwise, uh, and unfortunately, Canadians uh, went for it and thought that all of us were on the same page uh, in support of these road blockades, in support of uh, their protest to shut down Canada, and that's not true. Uh, that's It's that's, that's further from the truth.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely in our reporting, that was clear that it was a small number. Of, it's hard to even say agitators. When we were going through some of the groups, and some of them were U.S.-based groups, they were seriously calling for pure anarchy. This is, they aren't, you know, messing around to use a polite term.
1: Yeah, look, there are so many of us uh, indigenous leaders, both elected and business leaders are very upset by that because it really put a black eye on indigenous communities. It presented to the world that we are against development entirely and that we are part of the push to shut down Canada. And that's not true. Uh, what was frustrating in that whole process was that the elected body that signed on to those agreements were unable to tell their story. It wasn't until later on, uh, when the protests were coming to an end, that uh, the elected body along the corridor, along the route of CGL, were able to tell their story. And Even then, I didn't think that they got a fair shot at it. But um, look, at the end of the day, I've always said that uh, individual First Nation communities, in particular the Sudan, um, they're going to solve this thing on their own. I hope that that's what they're doing. I still know there's opposition there, but uh, I've always stressed that it's extremely important for interest groups uh, to stay away from uh, challenges that we have within our communities and leave our our challenges onto our own. I think we're more than capable enough of handling that. We're more than capable enough of handling land disputes. Um, Look, and I believe that uh, the hereditary has a play, but again, it's up to the individual communities to solve that matter on their own.
0: So let me ask you right now on the ground in Prince Rupert, which for those who don't know is in fairly Northern BC, BC can go up pretty far North. So when you say Northern BC, it sometimes can be just like the middle, but um, I'm actually from Prince George originally. So I do share some of the, (laughs) I I share some of the mosquito bites. That's for
1: sure. A lot colder up there.
0: (laughs) That's true. So let me, let me ask you this. What is it like on the ground in your community now that not only has COVID hit, but it locked down?
1: Uh, quiet, uh, just like many communities, there's some essential services that are open, uh, not much. Um, insurance places are closed. You have to call in to get your insurance online or over the phone, car insurance or house insurance. Some some banks are only taking appointments only, uh, so you can't physically go in there due to the social distancing that we all have to abide by, uh, making sure that everybody stays safe uh, there are some banks that are still um, allowing uh, people to come in and do some business. Um, but, again, it's a six-foot six foot distance that you got to stay. Uh, but people are out, um, not in great packs. It's the quietest I've ever seen in our community. Um, the port is still operating. There are a number of businesses still operating, but not at full capacity. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, some people, a lot of people, I should say, have been laid off and lots are still threatened to figure out a way uh, to see if they could sustain themselves through this crisis over the next three months or so. So it's uh, it's a lot much like uh, many of the communities, if not all the communities in British Columbia and Canada, that uh, right now it's important for everybody to stay safe and just, uh, you know, don't panic, but stay safe and just try to do your part to make sure that we get through this together and we move forward together and do what we can to to beat this virus.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think that's that's a good sentiment, sentiment, but we've got a bit of a darker view here. Let me ask you, do you think, when you look at the preponderance of evidence that's out there, whether or not, A, the world has overreacted, B, Canada has overreacted, C, British Columbia has overreacted?
1: Oh, man. I want to go back to my conversation I had with some leaders just as this hit, just actually just before uh, you and I had chatted and we were talking about the, um, the roadblocks that had disrupted uh, right across Canada because uh, our, our companies, our community companies were greatly impacted Uh, The port here was greatly impacted, and and unfortunately, uh, workers that were lower parts of the board of the port, which, as you know, is the union, uh, a lot of those uh, workers weren't able to work due to these strikes with the rail strikes. So uh, as to quote some of the leaders uh, without going into too much detail, and these are very influential uh, leaders that I I respect, Um, they felt that uh, their lives are being played with. Um, Being played with? I think uh, it definitely. I, I just feel uh, the conversations I've had, and then based on my conversation, in my opinion, uh, this um, it's a, it's unexplainable what we've been feeling. I, I've always said that I felt like I, I feel like I'm in a fictional movie. I, I I just don't even know how to grasp what's happened to us. But the leaders I've spoke to felt that. Uh, a lot of the stuff leading up to the, this unfortunate circumstances with the pandemic was uh, greatly organized, and it has been organized for an extremely long time. You add the pandemic to it; it was it was uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. So do you think I, there was? I, do you
0: think there was some organization around the pandemic in some way?
1: I can't comment to that. I right. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there, and I'm no medical expert. Um, it's here. Uh, there are people that are, have been greatly impacted by it. The loss of life is, is, is just, uh, it's very sad for the community members that have lost loved ones in this pandemic. Um, I just, uh, I hope that this gets fixed uh, very quickly, people get back to their normal lives and, and try to move forward in a productive manner. Um, like I said, I'm no medical expert. It's just a really unfortunate circumstance for Canada that we had to not only deal with the shutdown Canada approach, uh, by the NGOs, uh, you add the pandemic to it and now families are in a lot of pain. Uh, the energy sector is a lot of pain. It's not just the energy sector. This is retail, customer service. This is government workers. This is teachers, uh, everything you, you name it, everybody's been impacted by this. And I, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, The small businesses and even large businesses. I believe there'll be significant amount of business fatalities that are just not going to make it uh, through this pandemic. um, uh, Through the
0: aftermath of this, exactly. And then then there is too. Add on top of it is that we've got a near collapse, if not collapsing, as we speak, world oil market. So a pandemic and a price war have together brought energy markets to a crisis. And this is titled The Oil Collapse. And just for those of you who don't know, which is gonna be probably everybody, uh, Daniel Jurgen, the author here, is the preeminent historian on the development of the entire oil industry as we know it. Anything that you've ever seen that has been fantastic about the history of oil and the machinations uh, around oil, Um, Daniel has written that. So you can't have somebody else write this uh, of any more stature. The the global oil market has never in history collapsed as precipitously as it has right now. The oil and gas industry, which provides almost 60% of the world's energy, is engulfed in a double crisis that would have been dismissed as unthinkable at the start of this year. A price war with producing nations battling for market share has become lodged in the larger crisis of the the coronavirus pandemic and what will likely be the worst recession since World War II. The resulting collapse in demand will be bigger than any recorded since oil became a global commodity. Oil prices are already down two-thirds since the beginning of 2020 and still falling. The decline in global consumption in April alone will be seven times bigger than the biggest quarterly decline following the 2008-9 financial crisis. In the areas that lack access to storage and markets, the price of a barrel of oil could fall to zero.
1: That's, I don't know if people truly understand just how devastating that would be. What you're talking about is a negative price. Uh, meaning you got to give it away. Uh, you're not making anything on it. Um, the big concern right now is the consumption of oil right now that's being flooded between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, there are oil, oil tankers right now uh, sitting at bay because there's no home for it, and these ships are filling up. And so if you were at full capacity and the market can't, accommodate uh, the oil because we can't move it, we can't sell it because it's less than, a, than coffee, uh, you're going to be at a negative uh, just to, to, to move it. And that could be catastrophic for businesses that don't have the balance sheet to survive this. And what, what that does, though, what people need to understand is the energy industry is the single largest tax uh, contributor to this Canadian economy back to the government. And if our energy sector tanks like this, Uh, it'd be devastating. Canada won't be able to keep the lights on. Uh, I don't think people truly understand just how important our energy industry is, just how intricate uh, this whole industry is and interconnected the industry is to keep us going as Canadians, from from corporations down to mid-size to the small business to the mom-and-pop shops, tourism uh, you name it. I don't think people understand just how incredible the impact would be if we got to that point. Uh, we need to. We need to find a way to solve this matter. I'm. I'm hopeful that uh, you know the United States uh, have that meeting with Saudis and Russia. They're supposed to be meeting to combat this uh, flood of the market campaign between uh, Saudi and Russia, and um, it's going to be devastating for Canada. I mean, look at our, our WCS right now. Um, it's unbelievable. I, I I'm very new to the energy industry, but I I've never seen anything like this. I've seen unit pricing go down in in gas. I've seen price in oil go down. I've never seen it like this before. It's it's devastating. And I feel for the the people that uh, have been doing this work for a very long time. You, you think about the guys that and women that work in the energy sector that've done this all their lives. Um, I feel for them. So, yeah, I feel for everybody. It's going to be impacting everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I can imagine. I mean, every Canadian, certainly, and there's no doubt. Um, it just strikes me as, as just, I, I, this is not a conspiracy issue because things happen. Obviously, you know, we're under assault here by an ideology. Uh, it's clear, you know, there's a totalitarian thing that's happening. We're under martial law <laughs> being controlled to the point of, you know, washing your hands, that's, that's, that's quite a bit of control. Um, overall, it seems that if you were to look at the end game of some of the more radical environmentalists and climate change, you know, advocates, um, which actually is pretty mainstream actually these days, some of the what used to be radical, the world of that they were picturing and painting for us is a world without fossil fuels. And that looks like the world we're going into.
1: Well, if they think that, uh, you know, Canada's going to become one big national park, um, it's just not going to happen. We need the oil and gas sector to survive. We need energy to survive in this country to live. Uh, I mean, it's very hypocritical of anybody to think that fossil fuels is going out of date today, tomorrow, simply because there's a price war. Uh, Look, there's no magic to this. Um, The fact is that there is a price war. And unfortunately, uh, the, you know, two of the biggest uh, exporters of uh, oil and gas, in particular oil, they're going to look to crush some big corporations out there. They want to be the, the Mecca of all Mecca to make sure that they're the one last man standing. Uh, until they can figure out what they need to do, um, it could really hurt Canada. But uh, the saving grace here is the fact that, look, Canada is a strong nation. Uh, We have some pretty unbelievable business minds that are out there. They're looking out for everybody's interests, even those that are opposed. They don't understand uh, just how many uh, unbelievable business people and government elect are are doing their best to make sure that they keep the lights on. Um, This is an unprecedented uh, impact that nobody's ever seen before. Um, You think this is going to be the biggest impact. You know What my biggest worry is, uh suicides and social dissidence and disobedience and uh you 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 get people that are in a desperate times and they're they're they don't know what's going to happen and they get worried about putting food on the table for their kids you don't know what, what what a man or a woman would do uh when you get desperate you do and you make some really stupid decisions and that's a frightening thought of itself because nobody wants to starve and uh it's just unbelievable the fact that we um we shut down within hours. I, I like to say hours out a metaphor, even though it took a couple of days, but the fact that it went from the rail blocks to this so quickly, uh, I felt that there was not enough uh, due diligence on this pandemic to warrant in a complete shutdown within a week. Uh, airlines, transportation, uh, Trans-Canada uh, vehicles, bus lines, ships, uh, ferries, our tanker ships. It is unbelievable the precedence that this is, is the impact globally. And Canada, It's I've always said, I, I've always been so frustrated in what is happening to us uh, with these outside influences leading up to this is that Canada itself should have never been in this position. Uh, an example would be if we had even gotten one project uh, out of the gates Uh, I'll use Enbridge, for example. Even I used to be against that project until I started to understand what that actually means. Now, granted, you know, Enbridge um, could have done things differently. Uh, I think uh, they could have improved in a lot of areas. But for example, if that project had went, we probably wouldn't be in such dire straits as we are right now. The revenues that it would have been able to produce to, to keep people working. Uh, I'm sure there still would have been impact, but the revenues back into the country in terms of taxation uh, and back into infrastructure, healthcare, education, uh, mental health, senior help—all of those dollars would have been there. Um, so it's just devastating to see what's going on. And I—I've I, spoken to a lot of business, small business owners, and I tell you, the worry is unbelievable. Um, they don't know if they're going to stay afloat in three months. That's not just here in Prince Hooper, but that's everywhere. And people that I've talked to, the the concern is unbelievable. People, the people I know are pretty calm individuals, and I'll, I'll quote a good friend, business associate of mine. Like you just said, he was ready to snap, and that mentality is what scares me more than this pandemic. When you have, uh, when you stand between a woman and a man's ability to put food on the table for their families. Man, I've been there uh, when I was, uh, when I lost everything in my first business. And I tell you, it's it's a horrible feeling. And that's when the economy uh, tanked in 2008. Um, And then you see something like this. Uh, The the first thing I always think about every day when I get up now is I gotta make sure my kids eat. I gotta make sure there's a roof over their heads. I gotta make sure there's food in the fridge. Um, The bills are paid. I'm a small business owner myself, and I got to take precautions just like everybody else out there and I tell you it's it, it's stressful. So, it, it could be, it's stressful.
0: Yeah, it will certainly is. And it is for everybody. You know who it's not stressful for, though? Those who work in government and deemed essential services. If If you're lucky enough to be receiving government money to work, well, you're essential and that's all good. And that does bother me. It seems that the only people that are not essential in Canada are people who work in the private sector.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. Like, I, I mean, I'm not a big enough entity to say, okay, I could, uh, I, I could post, uh, funds every year to collect EI. I, I just, that's not, I, I mean, I haven't been on employment insurance in over 25 years if not more um i've always worked i've always worked extremely hard and and i've i've felt in, uh, on tough times but i've never uh i've never felt this before um look I'm, I'm still afloat i think there's a path forward to all of this uh we've had a lot yeah, well of before I, and don't wanna, I don't want
0: to i don't want to leave go down a path forward we're going to save that yeah. for the end to make sure that we try to end on hopeful yeah. so just tuck yeah. that away right because sure we've still got some you know drastic hard things to talk about and one of those is yep. the federal government now you've worked closely with the federal government in negotiations first nations issues resource issues now for some years so you've got an idea about how they handle things and are they handling this response right and let me caveat that that with the point being that government is tends to be extremely incompetent so can they possibly be trusted to manage this amount of money that they're planning on giving out uh, even effectively. I mean, it, you know, I don't even think that they're going to be able to effectively give that money out, but I hand it to you.
1: Look, uh, I, putting your name on the ballot box to run as a government official is not easy. no matter what level you're at, you get a significant amount of blowback and pushback no matter what. It doesn't matter what government that's in. You're going to, you're going to hear it no matter what. Um, my frustration, as I mentioned in previous videos I made, is that I felt that the the government did not act quick enough, uh, just as what happened with the roadblocks. Uh, this particular pandemic was known about since November. Um, there's people still coming in and out of the country via airport, international flights, uh, and I felt that there was not enough done. That being said, uh, I'm trying very hard to, to be... Uh, Optimistic that the the federal government will get this money out in a timely manner. I know they made some announcements this morning to help those that could do direct deposits into their accounts. But I mean, to put this into perspective, I, you know, you if you ever buy a um, tickets online, uh, say for rugby sevens, uh, and you, at any given time in the stadium, you could have about 40,000 people. Uh, Well, if you try to get a hold of somebody on the line and to talk about your tickets and your seating, well, good luck. Well, in one week, we had almost 1 million people uh, call uh, Revenue Canada to apply for EI benefits. So, and that was just in one week. Uh, I don't know what the numbers are at now, but um, uh, they're saying they're trying to get this money into the economy, but I mean, man, there's 36 million people in Canada. Uh, I don't know what the number is now for people that are being laid off or jobs that are being lost or businesses that are shutting down. Um, I just don't see how quick they're going to be able to get this money out um, in a timely manner in order to help save some of those businesses and save uh, people's uh, jobs. And they're they were they wanting to do this subsidy. Uh, I know they talked about direct deposit and stuff for small business and people have lost their jobs. but. It's, uh, like they say, time is money. And in this case, uh, time is everything.
0: Uh, um, no doubt. People
1: need to pay their rent. They need to pay their mortgage. Uh, they got to put food in the fridge and food in the tummies of their children. I, I'm I'm hopeful they're going to be able to meet that demand. But I, I tell you, uh, I just don't see it happening in a timely manner that uh, everybody's expecting this. I think there's a lot of, lot of layers that the people within government are trying to get through right now. And they're trying to probably fast track stuff. I've worked with government. I, I know it does not happen as quick as you want it to do, want it to be. Um, I just hope that uh, pace, patience for people is a virtue that, uh, that, you know, the government makes things happen in a timely manner. Cause I, I I've, spoken to a lot of people already um and there's panic already sitting in for a lot of folks and i'm hopeful that somehow they get through this um, while they're waiting yeah the waiting part is the worst
0: the waiting part is the worst i mean look the government has taken over every aspect of our lives there is not a single aspect of our lives at this moment that is not being regulated by the government and then as they roll out this money and they roll out their their whatever their economic plan is going to be to make this work they're going to touch every single sector, every business, every worker. How can this possibly be a way to run our economy?
1: Well, it's not. I mean, I I'm a, I'm a big believer in the private sector. I like I'm a, I'm in the private sector. What I've been able to do in the private sector for my family, I've never I've only ever dreamed about and, I, I, you know, I always try to dream big and hope that one day my family will never have to worry again. Uh, the private sector is what runs this country. Uh, the private sector is what provides jobs. private sector is what puts mom and dad back to work. private sector is where the money's come for tuition. The private sector is what, what is pumped into taxes to help with the infrastructure. Um, the fact that we're in this position right now is just unfathomable, but we're here and we need to move forward.
0: Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. This is, um, it's a serious question. Um, where does dignity come from?
1: Personally, it's you have you got to have your self dignity for yourself. And as an indigenous person growing up that grew up on the reservation uh, I'll tell you a story about myself because I like to use myself as an example first. Perfect Um, um, I grew up on income assistance from my parents when they got laid off uh, uh, from the fishing and forest industry Um, My stepfather was back and forth Uh, from uh, fishing and forestry. My mom was a fish plant worker. She worked in a cannery at the time. And then that whole industry took an absolute tumble. And uh, my parents, uh, they were laid off. And uh, I remember going into uh, income assistance lineup with my mom. I was very young. Um, And it was, I didn't really quite understand it then, uh, what she might have felt like because, when I had to leave home at such a young age, um, I was leaving the reservation and I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I wanted to get away from an environment that was extremely toxic uh, at the time. I was only about 16, 17 when I left home. And I remember uh, walking into an income assistance uh, office and I I swore I would never go there because I saw what my parents were there. But I was young. I didn't know what I was going to do to survive. And it was probably... My dignity was stripped. Uh, and even then I knew. So then I made me think about how my parents must have felt as adults uh, when your dignity is stripped of your ability to provide for your family.
0: So is That's, there any. Uh, so the government always says feeling. the government always says this. And, and our prime minister says this routinely over the years when he says that we are going to give dignity. To First Nations. We're going to give dignity to uh, the poor. We're going to give dignity. Is dignity something government can give or is it something, as you said, gets stripped?
1: No, it's uh, I mean, look, it's it's, dignity is uh, is a person that has values and morals and understanding of what it takes to be independent, to be self-sufficient. To be proud of your pride of pride proud of your culture, proud of your language, proud of whatever heritage you're from, whether you're whether you're Chinese or East Indian or First Nation, white or black. I mean, all those things is what encompasses you as a person. You strip all of that and someone says, I'm gonna take care of you now, and I take away your job and I take away your culture, I take away all the things that are meaningful for you to fulfill this joy you want for your family, you take that all away. What do you have? You're stripped of your dignity. You're stripped of everything that you felt that was important to you. And there's a lot of scared people out there right now uh, that are trying to be brave through this uh, pandemic. But this is not this is not the answer. It's a temporary, which I'm I'm hoping right now that the government understand this is a temporary um, uh, fix, short-term fix. But this is by no means going to get us past three months. Uh, of this unfortunate circumstance um like i said i and i know we're going to get there in a moment but there's we have to focus on the economy after this we need to get people back to work this uh it's a, not a good situation for a lot of people and you talk about dignity well talk to any first nation that lived on the reserve during the years of the residential school you'd ask them about how they felt when their dignity was stripped
0: yeah yes, i mean a lot a- of people are feeling it it's a fundamental problem we have. There's a whole chunk of our community as a nation who believe the government can bestow dignity onto people. And, and one of that ways of doing that, the essential way, is by taking care of them. <laughs> so protecting them, providing safety, providing, you know, job, providing food. I mean, we are talking about here a planned society. And they see a planned society... Is a way of bestowing dignity on people, you know. To first make that to make that plan work, you're like you said, you need to strip it. And I would I would dare say that every Canadian right now is in the process of being stripped of their dignity.
1: Yeah, I mean, what can you look? You're, you're, it's frustrating as heck for everybody to have to go through this. Uh, people have to touch uh, tap into their savings. Uh, I mean, even myself, I've had to pull out insurances. I've had to make sure that, uh, that anything that uh, that was usually an essential bill at the end of the month, I made sure to take care of all those via uh, either deferred payments or insurances that would take care of stuff because you don't want to drain your cash flow. Uh, but it's it's extremely difficult to, for so many people. Um, luckily, uh, we have dual income in our home, and even though I'm a small business owner and I have other entities out there with other business partners, I tell you, um, you still got to prepare for this stuff and it's not easy.
0: So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a, a, a terribly, uh, a, you know, incendiary question, um, but I have to do it, right? Because for the longest time, of course, with, when, with regard to First Nations relationship with Canada, uh, you know, Canada has been seen to be the oppressor and to have done a lot of oppressing. And it's. It, I'm wondering whether or not if, if they're trying to turn the rest, if they're trying to just apply some of the same methods and kind of sensibilities to just now to the rest of Canada, they're they're leveling uh, the rest of Canada down to kind of a one level.
1: I don't think. <laughs> I really hope that no government ever thinks that way, because I tell you, the way we were treated in past tense, you know, uh, was horrible. Uh, when I, I said this before, like... Uh, when you take away your land, your ability to work where you want, when you want, your ability to take care of your family, the ability to speak your language, your ability to uh, just be a man uh, and a provider for your family, you take that away, you're just a shell of a man trying to find identity. It's no different for a woman. Like a, a woman wants to be able to be there. A, man, a a mother always wants to be there to comfort their children. And the man still to, in today's society still feels that responsibility that we have to make sure all the big bills are, are paid in terms of our mortgage or house to make sure our kids and family can go on vacations and kids sports are taken care of like i mean i i mean you would know, say extremely frustrating for me to see this because i you know brent that i've talked about the u.n and i i've never been a big fan of the u.n uh just understanding the history of the u.n how it was started and this whole one world government thing i i gotta tell you even indigenous leaders are talking about it the pro-development uh, responsible development Indigenous leaders are not liking this. Um, I don't know, like I said, I, I, I feel like this whole thing has been planned for a very long time. Uh, it's unfortunate, this whole pandemic thing. I hope, to, I, I'm putting trust in our medical professionals that this is going to get solved and they're going to find a vaccine. In terms of the economy and our ability as a country to have this many resources, to have this country built on resources, stop like that is just unfathomable what's happened to us yeah how hope long is
0: a, you, how long do you think you can hold out how long can this shutdown last before it, it gets apocalyptic
1: you, know, you need i am hoping that this could be uh, i hope money and things can start moving within 6 to 8 weeks because it, i've heard talks of into the summer or longer and that i just don't see how much longer it could last it's un it's just i just don't see it Uh, I wish I had a magic crystal ball of what's happening. I mean, if you take a look at all the energy companies, they've all cut back. You know, Uh, Pembina, as you heard, they pulled out of Prince Edward or deferred their projects, and it's up to $1 billion they've cut in spending. Uh, They deferred the expansion project here. They deferred any potential LNG opportunity here. Um, Then you take a look at the big energy companies. You know, Suncor cut their spending by about 26%. And they, keeps, they keep cutting, and how much more can a person take? Um, how much more can a company take? Um, what bothered me about this whole thing about the package and this emergency package is not so much whether what the intent is. That's I mean, everyone's going to have their discretion on how that money should be spent. But what bothered me about it is that so many people were attacking the energy industry. Yet the government has deemed the energy industry as an essential service; that it's the heartbeat of our country; that they, it needs, it's essential that they stay afloat. So why is it now that you say that the industry itself has been the essential service of this country, the biggest taxpayer uh, ever to pay in, back into the government uh, for for programs and services, has? It has been so difficult to get anything built in Canada. Okay. So how could we say that we're this essential? The energy industry is this essential service, but you put up all of these policies and regulations and these this red tape just to get anything built here. I know firsthand when we were negotiating PW, the frustration that you had to go through from these NGOs and you know the the whole big green deal. Every time I thought we were done, one part of the process to get a closer step to FID, uh, a community or an interest group uh, would come in and, and, and put in a submission opposing us to get to the next step.
0: And I've just got so, up here right beside you um, here, Chris. Just make sure you uh, take a look here at your screen. This is on regulatorwatch.com, and this is our COVID-19 coverage. And we've got a special section on climate change. So the convergence of what's going on here, because many of the radicals, whether this was planned or not, they know certainly uh, gosh darn well that this is the opportunity to implement their exact plan. And so looking at, you know, outbreak reveals radical climate idea of economic degrowth. Some climate-focused economists see the COVID-19 pandemic as an unwitting experiment for a radical strategy to reduce global greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions. The concept is called degrowth. It involves a planned slowdown of economic sectors that emit large amounts of global carbon dioxide. Those sectors would scale down until the broader economy meets "quote sustainable emission levels," close quote, advancing long-term health and environmental goals. So, stopping the spread of coronavirus is paramount, but climate action must also continue.
1: Look, I, uh, I I've I've never been a fan of this. Um, uh, radical movement. Uh, do I believe climate change happens? Well, yeah, it's it's been happening for you know, millions of years uh, since man walked the earth before that. Um, I'm no scientist. I'm no climate change expert. I believe there's climate change happening. But to the extent that uh, this radical movement has put it, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt. And that's my personal opinion, just based on Uh, not just my personal opinion, sorry, let me correct that. based on some of the scientists that I've spoken to uh, that said, look, um, calm down a bit here. Uh, There's no need to panic like this. The sky isn't falling tomorrow. There's ways we could do this. Um, But what I have not seen from the radical movement is the fact that no one, not one of those groups have been able to come forward and give any sort of plan or even or any sort of opportunity for a transition of jobs. they just they just think it's okay to say okay, we got to go green, we got to go to wind farm, we got to go to geothermal. Well, that all that's all well and good. But I know firsthand that yeah, if we get into geothermal, you're not you you're not creating very many jobs. You're not creating revenue uh that gets back into the government's hands in terms of, of collecting tax back. Uh people need money back into the economy now. And what's going to happen is this green push or the environmental groups think that all of a sudden we could go to green energy like that and it's the be all end all that's not going to happen the government needs a revenue back source and the resource sector is the source of revenue that could get back into the government to repay back a lot of this uh emergency funds they're going to need as you 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 saw the prime minister which i was very shocked about that he's thinking about implementing uh this uh, carbon tax we're going to and he's going to up it 50 percent So that tells me, doing that, that uh, they need cash, they need revenue flowing badly. And so to the climate activists out there that think that this country is going to survive on uh, air, well, good luck. Good luck with that. Let me know how you make out because I'd love to know it too. If you can give me a crystal ball and tell me that uh, this country is going to survive on fairy dust, then hey, let me have some of that dust so I can move on. Because right now, none of those groups have provided this country with any solutions other than going back to media posts or they go onto social media and they, they, they condemn the industry and they provided no solution. They only talk about it and they don't have any idea how economics work and they go about their business like as if the energy industry, well, too bad, so sad, let's move on. That's not how it works. Without the energy industry, this country would not stay alive. So Here,
0: if you follow along uh, in uh, the the end game of the ideology that drives this, they're not saying that, that they aren't gonna use fossil fuels. In the end, as long as they control everything, they can uh, hammer down demand. So that's what uh, degrowth is all about. So that's actually, the degrowth plan has nothing to do with solar panels and hydroelectric power or any of the other green energy. It has, it's the opposite, in fact, actually. It's saying, okay, instead of trying to replace fossil fuels, with these you know, inefficient uh, energy sources, which just haven't been working, we're just gonna crush demand by crushing consumers and citizens uh, and then institute degrowth that way. And then that's the way that you can drive down the emissions. And quite frankly, if you've got that kind of control over the economy and the populace, well, you're going to basically uh, take control of the resources. You're gonna nationalize the resources. You'll put them to work uh, on behalf of the nation. That's what has always happened in history. I don't see why that we're not witnessing at this moment a true kind of socialist takeover of the entire resource sector, uh, nationalizing it. And they'll still put it to use.
1: (laughs) Look, yeah, I mean, you've heard my, me talk about. Uh, you, don't you don't need to you answer know, that. You don't need to answer that. I do. Like, you know, I, I always hear this word about universal income and universal housing, and people want to continue to spend taxpayers' dollars, which is evidently all the families we know in this country are going to be paying for something. Well, that's not just sustainable. You need a revenue source to come back to pay for all that. Without the energy sector, uh, I could guarantee you that a big piece of the emergency fund that's going out to Canada right now to keep the very same people uh, alive and thriving in this country is coming from the energy sector's tax dollars. Um, so it's it, it's just a, it's unfathomable to think how people would think that without our energy sector, this country can't survive this or could survive. I mean, Canada was built on resource development. That's who we are. Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity right now in the back end of all this, and I hope people, in, in particular, uh, uh, Canadians and Indigenous communities alike, could understand that there'll be an influx of cash into the marketplace, um, and there's an opportunity to build new businesses and move forward and and be a player in the energy sector. Uh, and then for Indigenous people uh, in communities, or Indigenous or not, uh, unfortunately, I hate to say this, but. Uh, businesses in the transportation industry, tourism, customer service, a lot of those businesses are going to go out. Unfortunately, they're going to fall to this. Uh, So what's going to happen is there's this uh, big push to get people back into those businesses that have failed or businesses that just couldn't survive. And there's going to be this mass hire to get Canada's economic engine rolling again. But again, I keep going back to the one industry that's going to help propel all of that and help, our country get out of this uh current situation and that's the energy industry and so there's let me, ways to do this
0: let me ask you uh one take you back to a topic that you had touched and then once we do that i think that we can start talking about some of the hope and planning and moving forward so sure. there's kind of two issues here wrapped up but you know it's about this globalist agenda uh that you had mentioned with the un and i mean how much of a danger is that and Roll in uh, the discussion with uh, the United Nations uh, uh, Declaration of Indigenous Rights, because that seems to be a framework that was, you know, pre-COVID, but kind of designed to, to kind of handcuff the country in, in ways in which that, you know, meet the globalist agenda.
1: Well, UNDRIP, it's been, as you know, UNDRIP's actually been around since 2007, and they, they, I actually know some of the people that actually worked on that to, to adopt it into the B.C. legislature. And, and what it was, it was UNDRIP obviously you know, came from the United Nations. Uh, United Nations, they actually have offices in B.C. and they fund uh, organizations like UBCIC. So they were leading this whole push to bring in UNDRIP, and UNDRIP was the framework to help Indigenous communities uh, and people to get into uh, mainstream economic opportunities, uh, social, language, culture, uh, housing, uh, you name it, was to have, a, a, an even, say, an even playing field uh, for Indigenous people to have an opportunity to get involved in the growth of Canada, to what it feels to be meant to be Canadian. but. Uh, Many a lot of people even the people that I'll put together know that at first I was extremely against that Because uh, rights and title supersedes that and so when I asked the question about Well, what is going to change to get informed consent free prior informed consent? Uh, Is the policies and laws going to change from under it and the answer was no uh, That it's a framework in working process. Uh, It's a work in progress uh, and it's going to take 10 years or more to implement. So if UNDRIP wasn't going to be the one that uh, uh, changes policies and laws in this country for Indigenous communities, then what was its purpose? And I'm still asked that question about overall. And it, it was the framework. I get all that. to get To, to get to shared prosperity. Uh, we were doing eighty to ninety percent of that work already uh, to get free prior and informed consent. But what I think Indigenous people, not just Indigenous people, but what I think Canadians misunderstand, is that they think UNDRIP is going to be a veto. UNDRIP will not be a veto. Uh, again, it's a framework to help uh, Indigenous community that, communities and their negotiators to get have to have a nation-to-nation uh, relationship and to have a framework to follow, to get to free prior informed consent. And, but that at the end of the day, what that still doesn't mean is that if you and I disagree uh, at the end, uh, and you say to me, well, I really didn't like that. And uh, you want to take me to court or I, or I want to take you to court because I felt that you didn't give me a fair process to get to free prior informed consent. That doesn't mean that I stopped the project. That's not how this works. Free prior informed consent is the that the industry and government must give indigenous communities a fair process to the end result. It doesn't mean that at the end, if I don't like you, or if I don't agree with you, I just stop a project. That's just not how it works. It means that I, or Indigenous communities, must have a a fair process to an end result. Uh, And we could get through that. Look, there's a a lot of ways we could get through that. It's just making sure there's Indigenous collusion right from the beginning. Um, As you can see, uh, Indigenous communities have won virtually almost every court case there is in Canada when it comes to rights and title in Section 35. So that supersedes UNDRIP. Uh, so again, um, it was a real tough one for me. I wasn't that I, I was against UNDRIP. I was trying to understand its intent and purposes given that we are already doing it um so i mean i've had so many discussions on this and i I believe in shared prosperity i i believe that there are communities out there that are not along the corridor that otherwise wouldn't get those opportunities with big business that are out in the middle of nowhere and wouldn't have had opportunities for revenue for growth in their community they should be a part of those opportunities and somehow bring them along i get all that but my biggest concern with u.n is like you always hear them the throwing around uh, this uh, one world government. Well, I don't support that. I just don't support that. And uh, a lot of people are just finding out now what what I was talking about, and I send them information. Even Indigenous leaders, very prominent, successful Indigenous leaders were not even aware of the UN 2030 agenda. Uh, now they're coming into the tables to talk to our communities, like for example, um, the climate change initiative. Well, there's UN scientists coming to the table and uh, there's now a bit of a pushback from indigenous. you say, wait a second here. The sole purpose of the table for Loko Lambs, Matlacala and Haisal and Nishka is how do we reduce emissions of getting product to tide water? That's the purpose and get these projects built. And uh, some of these guys have come in and, and uh I think they harp too much on on the climate that they're forgetting the fact that one we need jobs to live and two the purpose of this was to uh, the purpose of this was to uh, get these projects built, reduce emissions, create employment, create a revenue source back to the province, back to the federal government, and get people back to work and get these things built. It wasn't there. It's the, this table, I want to make it clear to everybody, and and the table will tell you itself the purpose is how can we reduce emissions, Canadians' emissions, Canada's emissions, which have been the top around the world. I think it's uh, 0.1%, but the purpose was how do we reduce emissions while building these projects and get our product out to new market? It's not to stifle them. It's to get them built effectively and with the best, uh, um, I guess, uh, environmental standards in the world is what their intent is.
0: Do you feel you're squeezed uh, to have to Uh, placate uh, some of the climate hysteria?
1: I'd be lying if I told you no. Um, I feel now uh, there's a lot of buying from it, but I also feel um, it has forced the hand of uh, industry to really think hard about uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But look, I, I tell everybody all the time that if Canadians only knew uh, just how hard industry is working to, re- to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's not that they don't know what's going on here. They, they'll they be the first ones to help develop R&D in order for their company to help their company reduce greenhouse gas emissions or a better way or better method of transportation. It's not these NGOs or these uh, the Green Party, if I may, uh, that's coming up with the R&D. It's the unbelievable minds of the energy industry, the people that have been in this industry, that are finding new methods, safe methods, to produce oil and gas and transport it safely safely to Tidewater while reducing emissions. It's not the Green Push that's doing that. It's the incredible women and men that work in our industry every day, the brightest minds in the world, that are the ones that are the innovators to find this. So we got to celebrate those. Look, I, I, I like you said, I, I'm, I'm. Well, you I'm can go Greek ahead supportive.
0: and start. Hold on for a sec. You can go ahead and start <laughs> painting a, a hopeful picture because we are tw- we're <laughs> wrapping up here. So let me ask you, where is their hope? How can anybody even possibly have hope right now?
1: Well, look, uh, this is a great country and there's some good people out there, some like-minded business people. Uh, I try to absorb everything I listen to and uh, I believe there's a path forward here where we can have inclusion with Indigenous communities. Uh, Now's the time that Indigenous communities have always uh, wanted to get involved in big business. Now's your time. But one of the things that have just came to light and an understanding of what they're trying to look at now instead of trying to find investment, uh, let's look at tax pools and, and, and take from the tax pools that way we could be reinvesting it uh, reinvesting into capital. Um, usually there's a tax pool out there that normally goes for about 45 cents on the dollar. Uh, I think um, what I'm finding out now is that businesses are looking and speaking with government by buying it say 10 cents on the, 10 cents on the dollar. So if you're buying, say, a million dollars, uh, say you got a million dollars in outstanding tax, uh, and if you pay 10 cents on the dollar, well, you got $10, $10 million for reinvestment uh, in capital into the energy industry, into small business. And that way it doesn't put so much pressure on the federal government, doesn't put a lot of pressure onto this uh, the private sector. And there's some amazing minds out there that are working towards uh, putting that option on the table. Um, There's a path forward here, and now's the time to really come together. And for the businesses that that have unfortunately pulled the pin, uh, I still believe that there's an opportunity for businesses to come back right now to start looking at ways to start the conversations with Indigenous communities and leaders to start developing that relationship now. Uh, Do it while things are down uh, because right now is now the time, because everybody's jump, jumping ship, a lot of people are not thinking about a planned recovery. I just saw uh, on the news today in on, on BC that the Horgan government now wants to put a team together to look at a recovery strategy to make sure that BC, should there be a, a project that's put forth uh, to the BC government, that they're in a position to handle those uh, that opportunity. So I, what I think we need to do, though, is that Canadians and British Columbians need to understand now that because what we went through with the roadblocks, the protests, this climate change, the regulatory review, the policies that just put so much red tape, we've got to be cognizant of the fact that if Canadians want to attract uh, global investment, we got to—I'm not saying make it easy for them, but put out a path that is efficient, that's uh, goal-oriented— that has a step by step of how the federal government, the province, First Nation and industry is going to get through the process to get these projects built in a timely manner and get things rolling and get people back to work. You get revenues back into their country, you get revenues back into the communities uh, and and get people training and employed uh, because uh, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a big push. There's going to be a lot of capital that's going to be coming out in the back end of this, and now's the time for Indigenous leaders to really think long and hard about a good strategy and to work with the province and to work with the feds to say, look, we got to have a council meeting here, uh, a meeting of business leaders, government elect, a private sector, and you take a look and you sit down. This is what we need to do uh, for X company to get through the EA boom, 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 boom. This is what we got to do to get it efficient because right now history has shown us that because of these regulatory reviews, when you think about Bill, Bill C-69, it's, I, I mean, if I was an investor coming in from outside of Canada and I take a look at what the process the Canadian government wants me to go through and, and, and I looked to the South of the border and you take a look, what's happening down there. They say, well, why would I go here if, they're going to put me through the same sort of process, but just not as a stringent and red tape. Well, I'm going to go to a good old Uncle Sam and take my investment elsewhere. Yep. And so now what's happening is now there's going to be this big push to get Canada's economic engine rolling again. And that's why I'm saying to the Indigenous leaders, now's the time to really put together a good strategy and a good business uh, sense, a group of people, and in terms of a committee, and a strategy session, and saying, "Okay, look, uh, we have all we 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 know what went wrong last time. Uh, we've gone through this before. Lessons learned. Let's go forward." And it's the private sector, business-minded, the the groups, that, the individuals out there that understand this industry that can help not only the indigenous communities get involved, but help Canada on the path to economic prosperity through the private sector. And it's the, it's the energy sector that's going to help us do that.
0: And Chris, and let me just say that I think uh, our, my advice for anybody in the private sector, yes, you have to fight for uh, your life economically, but more importantly, you need to fight for your life, for your right to exist as a private business person, because I truly think that is what's under assault here. Chris Anke, thank you so much for joining us today on Watch, and uh, we'll be happy to have you back anytime.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. You bet. Now just hang tight right there. And that is it for this edition of Watch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did it, and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to please follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.